Well, it's good to be here with you guys. I want to welcome those of you at our West Campus and uh, all of our venues. Uh, we're continuing our series this week called Content. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this. You know, I wonder if you guys were like me. You know, I grew up in a family where, uh, what's the politically correct way to say, you know, we were economically challenged just a little bit. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, especially kind of pre-junior high. You know, my dad had had a serious accident. My mom pretty much was a single mom. And so she did the best that she could, but we didn't have a lot of means. And so the cool thing, though, about looking back and this whole thing of contentment is I look back at my childhood, the early years of our life, I look back at it, and my memory is very content. I mean, we made the best out of what we had. We thought having a house with wheels was pretty sweet, you know. We thought that, you know, having bars on our windows meant our house was really secure. You know, we, we had a good childhood. We didn't think negatively about it at all. I look back and have such great memories of growing up and, and really just content with the things that we had. We may not have had, you know, a big house. We may not have had a lot of fancy things. But there was just a sense of enjoyment and happiness in life. You know, being a parent kind of gives you a new perspective on the relationship that you have with your parent. You know, a new appreciation for the stress, the anxiety, and pain that I put my parents through. And, uh, and it kind of opens your eyes to the reality of what maybe they had experienced and what potentially you will experience in life. And, and I remember a couple instances where I have some significant regret in the way that that played out. You know, because we didn't have a lot of money and because we didn't have significant means, yeah, you know, when I was younger, we were content. But right around, I would say, sixth or seventh grade, junior high, things began to change a little bit. You know, we went to a school where, you know, where we were exposed to people that had things that we didn't. We went to a school where people had nicer shoes than we did. You know, my mom had convinced me that, that the four stripes on the side of the shoe were cool when actually those were the fake Adidas that were $10 at Payless. And I come to find that out when I see people with a three that cost $75 at Foot Locker. You know, and you see the kids with the things that you don't have. And, you know, I remember some, some of the, the classmates, they had Game Boys, and one of them even had a Trapper Keeper. You know, I wanted a Trapper Keeper, and I didn't have one. And, and you begin to get exposed to all these things that you never really knew about. And all of a sudden, maybe you know this moment, maybe you had it. For the first time in your life, you're like, oh, we don't have very much money. And you realize, you know, that at least in your own mind, you're missing out on something. And I'll never forget really that age of my life, that sixth or seventh grade. I mean, in all, all of my remembrance, that was when it really started for me. You know, as Alan called it last week, the disease of discontentment really began to gain ground in my life. You know, seeing the things that all the other people had that I didn't and desiring those things. You know, the very things that I appreciated, like the home we were able to get, I began to despise because it wasn't as good as the house that my friends lived in. You know, there were many things like that. But the one specifically that I really feel badly about when it comes to parenting, you know, my mom, again, she did her best. She was a single mom at the time. And, and you know, she didn't have a lot, lot of ability to, to buy nice things. And so she didn't have what I would call a very appealing vehicle. You know, and we were in a school where everybody would get picked up kind of in this roundabout, okay? So all your friends knew what car your parents drove. You know, there was no hiding it. It was exposed. And so I remember it was the dreaded moment of my day. 
because I would go stand in this roundabout. All the kids are there, and, and you know, their parents are picking them up. They're driving a, a beautiful brand-new car and this car and that car, and some have Mercedes and Escalades. And here comes my mom rolling up in her 1990 Ford Escort hatchback, you know? And, and I wasn't real pumped about the idea of letting my friends see me get in that car. I mean, it was kind of killing my street cred, you know, at school. And, and so I remember my brother and I, we would do everything we possibly could to make sure that nobody saw us get in that car. I mean, I remember hiding around the corner, you know, and I, there was like a little hole in the fence. And I'd just be looking through that hole, waiting until my mom's car got to the place where I had to get in. And I told my mom one time, hey, if you could just have the door open when you pull up, that way I could just dive in. You know, I'd have the hood on my head. I'd wear a hood every day just so I could hide. I'd put my backpack over my face, and I'd just run like an Olympic runner. You wouldn't believe this. Coming around that fence, just diving headfirst into the car, it was a beautiful thing. And then the problem was is you're in the car, right, but you're still stuck in this little roundabout for like 20 minutes. So my mom, my like, hey, mom, could you bring a blanket so I could just cover my face in the back of the car? You know, I don't want anybody to see me. And I look back at that now, that was pretty harsh, you know. That was pretty harsh on my mom. And uh, the, the sad part is it actually gets worse. You know, we, we finally concocted this plan. You know, hey, mom, we feel really bad that, you know, you have to sit in that roundabout for 20 minutes to pick us. It's just not fair to you. So we come up with an idea. What if you just park like one block away and then we'll go ahead and walk over there and meet you at the car? And I looked at her face in that moment. And I wasn't fooling her at all, you know, and I see kind of tears well up in her face. And I'll never forget the hurt I caused her in that moment, just simply because my heart was discontent with the car we had. You know, and in those moments I pray, as I remember that, I pray, God, please let that principle, you reap what you sow, not be true with my kids. <laughs> please don't let me have to experience that when it comes to my children. But, you know, I look back at those situations, and I look back at that time in my life, and I really remember it just... It just became a serious issue, and the sad part is, is it never really changed. You know, actually, it just got worse. I mean, I think we all know the story. We've all been through it. And the sad part is, the more you're exposed to, the more you see, the more you experience, the less happy you are with what you have. You know, this is a serious issue, and I think the temptation for all of us is to kind of just dismiss it as, hey, look... <laughs> That's just part of the culture we live in. We're going to have a lot of discontentment in our lives. It's no big deal. And Paul strongly disagrees with that. He was talking to a, a church. He was talking to a group of people that had a similar experience as you and I do. It was a very wealthy area. We are in a wealthy area of the world. He was a very wealthy area. And he, he wanted to make sure that they didn't in any way consider it okay to live with discontentment in their lives. And Alan helped us see that last week. I want to look at just one verse that he read last week. I think it's really important. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's how, that's how Paul starts out this whole passage to this group of people. Now, it's, it's really interesting. When you learn how to study the Bible and you begin to look at the nuances of how things are structured, you look at this sentence and it's very intriguing because from my knowledge, from my understanding, I would have probably just said, hey, look, godliness, a relationship with Jesus, experiencing his mercy, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, man, that's great gain. But it's interesting. Paul doesn't say it that way. He actually says, no, 
godliness, all those things I just said, that with contentment, now that's great gain. And what he's saying there is actually very powerful. What he's saying to us is that ultimately, discontentment in our life is a stealer. It's a thief. It is stealing your ability to enjoy the life that God has given you. It is, it is inhibiting you to experience the fullness of the life that Jesus offers you. Paul's saying, you guys, hey, it is not okay to just play around with discontentment. It is a big deal in your life. Matter of fact, go back to Genesis. What was the very first sin of mankind? Part of it was discontentment. Right? I mean, God had given them everything in the garden. They had everything they could dream of. God said, nothing is off limits to you but this one thing. It wasn't enough, was it? Everything wasn't even enough. They needed a little bit more. That's what discontentment does in our lives. And as we see for Adam and Eve, it led to destruction, to pain, to anguish. And that's exactly what it will do to our lives. And so Paul wants us to take serious consideration to the idea of discontentment and contentment in our lives. And so he goes on, and as Alan talked last week, he, he, he mentioned, hey, look, a few ways to start moving towards a more contented life is generosity, is gratitude. And we're going to talk about this more over the next couple weeks. But before Paul gets a chance to even address those two things, he stops and he talks about something else. Before he goes into the tangible ways that we can begin to experience a more contented life, he actually stops, he says, but I, before we talk about those things, I want to address your attitude, your emotions, and your heart towards things and towards money. And so he stops and he says this in, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, what is he saying? It's easy to pass over verses like that and not get anything out of it. But this is actually a very profound statement. Again, before we go into the tangible ways to avoid discontentment in our lives, he says we need to deal with our attitude, our heart, and our emotion towards money and stuff. Because we can be generous and we can be grateful and still not experience contentment. It starts somewhere in a deeper place. And so he addresses two things. First of all, he says, hey, for those of you that are rich, we've talked about this before. We don't need to say much about it. That applies to us. In that culture, that word rich did not have anything to do with a class system like we do where there's poverty, middle class, wealthy, rich, ultra rich. It wasn't that kind of phrase. The Greek word just meant, hey, for those of you that have compared to those of you that have not. What that meant was if you have food, shelter, and clothing, I'm talking to you. Okay, so this is, a, this is a, a term that doesn't translate well into our language. It doesn't mean ultra-wealthy. It just means for those of you that are taken care of, that you have a house, you have clothing, you have food, this is for you. And that really applies to the next couple things that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks when he talks about generosity and gratitude. So he says, for those of you that are rich, and then he makes a statement, he says, don't be arrogant in your wealth. Now, this is easy to pass over, but it's actually very profound. I think all of us know that when we're around people who have more money than us, we feel inferior. I mean, it is a natural human emotion when it comes to money. And vice versa, when we're around somebody who has less than us, we feel a little bit superior. And what Paul is trying to say is, look, you need to understand that money is lying to you. That money does not make you better. It doesn't change your status, it doesn't change your value, it doesn't change your worth. Money does not do that. 
I know it tells you that it does. I know you think that it does. But let me let you know that that is an arrogance of money that is not true. And so he wants to address, first of all, the emotion, I think, that convinces us to keep trying to obtain more things, just like mine in junior high, right? That if I had more things, I'd feel like I was a better person. I'd feel like I had more value. I feel like I measured up. And Paul's saying you've got to remove that emotion from your heart. Because as long as you believe that, you will not experience contentment. And then he says, I want to address the second emotion that money oftentimes makes us feel. So not only does money make you feel arrogant, but he says, don't put your hope in money. Okay, that's another emotion. Not only do we feel like money makes us better, we feel like money makes our lives better, right? Money makes us better. Money makes our lives better. We believe, we all know this, we believe that ultimately the more stuff, the more money, the more things we have, the happier we will be. This is what pretty much every person I've ever known believes. Now, do we want to believe it? Do we really know it's true or not? I don't know, but I do know that our heart continues to pursue it over and over and over again. What I do know, and, and this whole thing about contentment, it's almost a conundrum sometimes. Because I remember growing up, you know, I had my first car. And, and I was 16 years old. My dad gave me my first car. It was his old car. And, you know, my, my dad gave me, a, it, was, it was an 88 Chevrolet Celebrity. It was not a glamorous vehicle. Let's just put it that way. There was, it was a box, basically, on wheels. And, and there was no frills. There was nothing good about it. But it had wheels. It had an engine. It had a steering wheel. And I could drive, so I was pumped. You know, I didn't mind that the felt on the ceiling was like coming down in my face when I was driving. You guys know what I'm talking about, that old felt? That was all peeling off. The little flakes, dust are in my eyes when I'm driving. It was worth getting in an accident, right? I was just happy to be driving a vehicle. I remember I spray painted the outside of it black because the paint was peeling. Don't ever spray paint your car. Really bad idea. I remember there was a malfunction in the horn. And this is the worst part about the car. You could be driving down the road and just out of nowhere, the horn just, you know, and you're just driving, it's just going off. There's nothing you can do about it. People are flipping you off and you just smile, you know, and you just keep driving. But here's the deal. I loved the car because it was my car. It was the first car I ever had. Now, unfortunately, we all know within about eight months, I couldn't stand that car, you know. I saw other people's cars. I saw cars that didn't have malfunctioning horns. I, I saw cars that had power steering. Have you ever been in a car without power steering? <laughs> My old car, it didn't have power steering. I mean, you had to work out daily just to drive. I mean, this is a, you could not parallel park. You could barely turn if you were going under 15 miles an hour. Anyway, you know, I looked at these other cars. They have power steering. They was, I, I wanted something else. My heart became discontent with what once made me happy, Right? Now, here's what's so sad, and here's what frustrates me like crazy. And this is just me being honest with you guys. Frustrates me like crazy. I have a car now that when I was 16, I could not have dreamed of owning. Okay, I have a car now that has all the features I could ever hope for. And it's not a brand new car. It's a 2008, but it's a very nice car. It has a lot of upgrades. It has a lot of features. And here's what is so sad. A year after owning that car, I feel no different a year than after owning my 88 Chevrolet Celebrity, right? Because I see commercials every day. I drive past cars every day that are better than mine. It didn't matter whether it was a Chevy Celebrity, you know, or, or a 2008 with a whole bunch of features. Our hearts are never satisfied when we believe that satisfaction comes from stuff, 
And that's what Paul's trying to say. He's look, money is trying to convince you that it will make you better, and money is trying to convince you that it will make your life better, but it's lying to you. And then he says, hey, if that's not enough to convince you, if you still don't believe me, let me give you one other reason you shouldn't put your hope in money. And he says it here, he says, because it's so uncertain. I mean, we all know that's true. I'm guessing there's not a person in this room that has not been through the ups and downs of finances. You know, for me, I mean, much of my life, there have been ups and downs. I remember, you know, 2005, 6, and 7, we were doing really well. There were some great investments that God had allowed us to make. And unfortunately, I had allowed my heart to begin to believe that, man, we're set, you know. We're in such a good place financially. Our bank account looks really good. Our investments look good. And I begin to do what Paul says, be careful of. I begin to put my hope in that. I begin to think, hey, we're, we're okay. We're good. You know, we've got a lot of investments. We're going to be set. And as we all know, 2008, 2009 comes around. And the bank that I had all my mortgages with here in Greeley shut down. And I lost every penny that we owned. This security, this hope that I thought, hey, we're set for the future, it was gone within like a day. This bank's president in the FDIC called me and said, hey, just so you know, all your loans are due or we're taking everything. That's not just my story, that's many of your stories. You know, my, my sister-in-law, her mom has worked for the government for 30 years. She was like a month away from getting her life pension. And they fire her a month before she gets her pension. And now she gets nothing. What she had oftentimes put her hope in to say, look, gosh, I'm going to be set. I've worked 30 years. I got a pension. I'm good to go. Guess what? It was ripped away in just a moment. I mean, I don't have to convince you. You know. Money is so uncertain. And Paul knows, God knows, when we put our hope in those things, guess what? We will always be let down. We'll never be content. And we'll find ourselves in a hole that we can't figure out how to get out of. And so Paul goes, look, you guys, you can't put your hope in money. Don't let money convince you that it's going to make you better or it's going to make your life better. It's not true, and it's also uncertain. It's not going to lead you to the place that you think it will. And so then he gives us this alternative, yet it's hard to understand in this context. So I want to look at a couple passages to help kind of give some tangible you know, understanding of what he says here. But he says, look, hey, wealth is uncertain. Don't put your hope in it. And then he gives us an alternative. We just read it a moment ago. He says, instead... Put your hope in God, who richly provides everything for your enjoyment. Now, the basic principle there is, hey, look, money is not our source. Money is not our provider. Our boss is not our provider. Our job is not our provider. Our bank account is not our security. The basic principle there is, look, the only thing that is secure, the only thing that you know that you have, the only thing that will always be there for you is God. That's what Paul is saying here. But I want to actually take it a, another level, and I want to look at the guy's life who said this. I want to look at Paul's life through just a couple of little passages and help you see how Paul really believed and put into practice making God his hope instead of money. And I encourage you to, to just jot these things down, to make a mental note of them, because Paul's life is, is really supernatural. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of supernatural. And he kind of gives us a picture as to how to stop making money our hope and make God our hope. So the basic principle is, hey, look, money's not our hope, God is. But let's look at how Paul chose to do that in his life and how he believes, I believe he can teach us to do the same. We're going to look at a passage that's very famous. 
You guys have all heard this passage. You've, you've probably seen it used many times. Uh, one, of the, one of the verses in this passage is tattooed on many people's arms. And, and we're going to kind of look at what it really means here. So Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, it says this. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you, renew, you renewed your concern for me. He says, indeed, you were concerned, but you never had an opportunity to show it. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, when you read that Verse 13, I can do all this through him, him who gives me strength. You know, you realize that kind of, that passage is a little bit more redefined than what we thought it meant. This is in the context of Paul saying, look, you guys, first of all, he's thanking this church. He's thanking this church of, of Philippi for the gift that they've given him. Okay, what you need to know here is that Paul, 10 years ago, planted the church of Philippi. So he, he planted that church, he built that church, he raised up leaders, he loved on those people, he loved on the community, and he launched them to become a great church. And so now, it's been 10 years since Paul has been to Philippi. Okay, it's been 10 years since Paul planted this church. And so what's happening now is very interesting. He's, he's thanking the church of Philippi for a gift that he received 10 years later. Now this gift had just come recently, we find out. As you study this passage. And Paul says, he's like, look, hey, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you at last renewed your concern for me. He's saying, thank you for the cash. It was money that he got as far as we can tell through studies. Now, what's important for us to understand here is that Paul was not just in need all of a sudden. Okay? He wasn't just in a bad circumstance and that's why they sent money right now. For the last 10 years before this letter was written, Paul had been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, he'd been starving, he'd been close to death, he'd been imprisoned. Paul had some really terrible circumstances, probably worse than any of us in this room. Paul had not been going through what we would call a comfortable life. He had not been well taken care of. He didn't have everything that you and I would consider to be needs. And so what's interesting is, is that this was the first time, as far as we can see, and as far as Paul says here, this was the first time that the church of Philippi had reached out and helped him. Now remember, he had been going through hard times for 10 years. Well, I say all this because I want you to see Paul's response. It, it is really powerful. I got to tell you, if this is me, and this church that I planted and gave my life to, knew that I was in prison, that I was struggling, that I needed help, and didn't send me anything or didn't reach out to help me, I'd be like, you guys are a bunch of jerks, right? What's your problem? Seriously. Paul totally lets him off the hook. He says something totally different. Remember, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you at last renewed your concern. So he is saying at last, right? It's been a while since you guys have reached out. But then he lets him off the hook. He says, but indeed, you are concerned. Meaning, hey, I know you guys were worried about me. I know you guys were thinking about me. I know you guys were praying for me. I know that you, were, you knew I was in need and you cared. But then he makes this statement. He says, but you had no opportunity to show it. What does that mean? So that word opportunity in the Greek is the word kairos. Okay, that is a word that kind of, let me just summarize it, make it easy. It's just like a God-inspired moment. Okay, the word opportunity there, kairos, 
It just means God-inspired moment. So what Paul is saying is, look, you guys, hey, I was in need. There's no doubt about it. I've been going through some hard times. I rejoice greatly at, at your renewed concern for me. I'm very happy to receive this gift. He says, but hey, I know you were concerned. There was just no God moment. There was no God-inspired moment for you to show your concern. Here's what Paul is saying. Look, you guys, it's okay because I trust God. If God had wanted you to give me something, if God had wanted you to reach out, it would have happened. Now, this is a deep principle we're not going to talk about for a long time, but I want to just touch on it. Ultimately, what Paul is saying to us here, and it's the first thing we have to understand, if we want to really experience contentment in our lives, I think the first thing we have to understand is Paul learned to trust God's providence. Okay? Number one, number one is Paul learned to trust God's providence. Here's what I mean by that. Paul knew that if he needed something, God would take care of it. It didn't take the church reaching out and giving him money for him to have been taken care of. He didn't need the church of Philippi to give him what he needed in order to have sustenance, in order to be able to make it. He knew that God was in control, and if God wanted him to have something, he would have it. Wow. I mean, could you imagine if we lived that way? I mean, he believed that if it was of need, there would have been a Kairos moment, a God-inspired moment, and it would have happened. See, for us to experience contentment in our lives, we have to believe that God is in control and that God is looking out for you and that he will do what he says. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, hey, quit worrying, you guys. Quit stressing out. I take care of the birds. You think I'm not going to take care of you? Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. I got it. I mean, God's providence is how he works. It's amazing. I mean, you look at the life of Joseph. I can't talk about this long, I know, but you look at the life of Joseph, right? This guy's thrown into a pit by his brother. He's sold into slavery. He's put in prison. He has a miserable existence for a lot of years. And God did not cause those things, but through his providence, through his will, he used all those things to do what? To save a nation from famine and to put Joseph in the number two position of an entire nation. God had it under control. I'm sure a lot of you guys have difficult circumstances right now. Maybe like me, you know, in 2009, I didn't know how I was going to pay our rent. I didn't know how I was going to put food on the table for my family. We had no income. And what's so amazing, looking at that situation back then, there was not a day I didn't have a roof over my head. There wasn't a day my family didn't eat. God took care of it. And as long as we believe that it's up to us, we will never be content. It's impossible. So Paul knew, hey, look, if God wanted me to be taken care of through you, he would have inspired you. You would have sent the money. He didn't. I'm good. No worries. But thanks for the gift. I really liked it. And I love that he says that. I love that he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord when you renewed your concern for me. He says, look, I love the cash you sent. It was awesome. So there was nothing wrong with him desiring the blessing, okay? It wasn't wrong for him to want this gift, so clearly we see that he wanted what they sent. He didn't say, hey, no thanks, take it back. No, he said, hey, I rejoiced. I was glad to get the cash, you know. But then he says something really powerful to counteract that. It's, it's so convicting for me and challenging for me. In verse 11, remember I read this, he said, hey, guys, I know I said I rejoice greatly and everything, but, but please understand, he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. 
He's saying, I'm not rejoicing and so excited about this gift because I'm in need. Now, you got to understand that's a crazy statement because, again, I just told you, he was writing this from prison. He had terrible circumstances. He was, he was in a really bad situation, probably on the way to his execution. He wasn't taken care of. He barely had anything. He had maybe the basic necessities of life. And yet he says, hey, I rejoiced. I really wanted your gift, but please understand that I didn't say this because I was in need. Wow. What do we learn there? Paul, and this is the second thing we got to understand. This is, this is really hard, so I'm not making this easy. Paul learned the difference between need and want. Paul learned the difference between need and want. See, it was okay for him to want, right? He rejoiced when he got the cash. He was happy about it. It was okay for him to want, but he said, look, my contentment level is not based on my wants. My contentment level is full because my needs are met. Wow. So here's the deal. I'm, I'm reading this passage. I'm praying about it. I'm walking around a local park. I have my headphones in. I'm listening to worship music and just praying and trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to say? You know, what are you speaking to me? And as I'm walking, my headphones, they start to pop, you know, and I, the music isn't real clear, and I was a bit frustrated. And subconsciously, and I'm sure we all do this all the time, subconsciously, as I'm, as I'm praying and I'm thinking about this, and those earphones were bugging me, popping, in my head, I said, man, I need a new pair of headphones. Now, it was subconscious, and normally, I probably would not have thought a second thought about that statement, but because I was praying this message, I felt like God just stopped me in that moment. I said, wait a minute, think about what you just said. And I did, and I stopped. I'm like, wait a minute, huh. Yeah, I guess I, guess I don't need new headphones. And then I took it even a little further as I was standing there. I'm like, well, I guess truth is, I mean, I don't even need headphones. I mean, that's not a necessity in my life. And all of a sudden, I mean, this whole fabric of my life began to unravel as I was sitting in that moment thinking, wait a minute, what? And it was like it was like the discontentment in my life was just exposed and I was naked in that moment for all the things that I have, quote unquote, said that I need. I, I made it my, my goal, you know, to go home that week and to begin to pay attention every time I made that statement. And I said it a lot. I couldn't believe how many times in one week that in my mind I said, I need this or I need that or I need this. It was just constant. So then I stopped and I, and I created this list. And I said, okay, God, I, I need your help. And I prayed, Holy Spirit, help me here. And I created a list that basically said, you know, what are the things that I absolutely need? And I encourage you to do this. It will mess you up. I look at this list and I start writing a bunch of things down, you know. Well, I mean, of course I need this and, you know, I can't wear those kind of things. And so, yeah, I definitely need this and... And then I, I looked at my list and prayed, and I just felt like God was checking all these things off the list. Like, no, 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 no. And honestly, at the end of the day, when I look at this list, what do I need? I need food. I need clothing. Water is included with food, so I need food and water. I need clothing, shelter. And, and if I really want to push the limits of vehicle, because we don't technically need a vehicle, right? There's public transportation. And I couldn't really technically justify anything else on that list. 
And what it did to me in that moment was crazy because then I realized everything else that I had, which is <laughs> times a million, was actually just a luxury. It was a want. And I think that's how Paul viewed his life. He goes, look, hey, I, I got a roof over my head. It's prison, but hey, I got a roof over my head. You know? Our clothes on my back, they're, they're pretty torn up because I just got beat a little while ago. But I got clothes on my back. You know, I'm getting fed whatever these guards give me, which isn't much. Very, very little if you study the times. I'm good. I'm good. Oh, hey, hey, by the way, though, thanks for that cash. I did want it, but I didn't need it. That's a luxury. I'll thank God for it. I'll rejoice for it, which you did, right? That's a luxury. But hey, guess what? My contentment level is not based on what I want. It's based on what I need. Wow. I mean, let me tell you, we would all be full to the brim of contentment if we could live that way. And then, you know, after that, Paul kind of, he makes his last statement. I'll reread this again. He just says, hey, look, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret. Okay, pay attention to that. I've learned the secret. This is important of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or living in want. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, it's hard to understand, I think, in that translation, what Paul is really trying to say. What is the secret? What's the secret, Paul? I want to read it to you in a different translation that I think really helps bring this passage alive. Philippians 4.13 in the message version, it says this. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I mean, just, I'm going to read that to you one more time and just think about it. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it do anything in the one who makes me who I am. Before I go and explain that, what we have to understand, you guys, what Paul is saying here is, look, my contentment is not found in my circumstances. My contentment is found in the fact that I have Jesus. That is the secret that Paul is trying to communicate. Now, here's what makes that statement crazy. This is a guy who, if you walked up to him, he would tell you stories of being shipwrecked multiple times. He would tell you stories of being beaten 39 times with the cat of nine tails, twice, of being flogged, of being persecuted. He would tell you stories of being starving and not knowing if he was going to make it. This is a guy who's in prison, about to be murdered for what he believes. And he's saying, look, you guys, I want you to hear something. That's not the stuff that controls my ability to experience contentment. Wait, wait a minute, Paul, what? What did you say? Wait a minute, so when you're shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean, holding on to one little board, and you don't even know if you're going to make it on shore, you don't even know if you're going to be alive in a few hours, what are, you, what are you saying? You're content in that moment? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. What, what, you're telling me when you're, when you're tied to a post and you're being whipped with the cat of nine tails that you're okay? Yeah, I'm good. 
He's saying, look, man, you got to understand. And I, I read this passage, I just feel him saying to me, look, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I am. I'm tied to this post. I'm being whipped in this moment. Everything looks bleak. My life may end in this moment. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm going to tell you something. My identity, who I am, my happiness is not defined by my circumstance. My happiness is defined in the fact that Jesus rescued me. He saved me. He gave me life. He gave me hope. He gave me forgiveness and grace, and I will live in eternity forever with him. Yeah, I'm being whipped. It's, it's not fun. I'm not really enjoying this moment. But you know what? It's not going to deter me from being content in what I have because I have Jesus. Wow. Man, that verse deserves all the attention it gets just in a little different way. He's saying, look, you guys, I don't care how dark your situation is. I don't care how broke you are. I don't care what you're going through financially or what you're going through physically. If you want to learn how to be content, you got to understand that stuff is not your source. The fact that you have Jesus is enough. Wow. Paul understood, I got to trust God's providence. I got to believe that he's in control. And I got to believe that he will provide when necessary. Paul learned to understand the difference between his needs and his wants. And he said, you know what? As long as my needs are met, I'm good. And then he said, look, hey, even if my needs aren't met, <laughs> he takes it to another level in the next one. Even if my needs aren't met, even if I'm tied to a post being whipped for my faith, I'm still, I'm, I'm good. Because I got the Savior of the universe. He defines who I am, not this whipping post. Not this shipwreck where I'm sitting out in the middle of the ocean. That doesn't define who I am. It's the one who saved my soul and has given me a chance to be in eternity forever. Wow. Let's pray. Jesus, Paul clearly, he understood something supernatural. I believe you had to do something in his life to help him get to this point. Because, God, we are weak. We're weak. And, and guess what? Every commercial that comes on, God, it tempts us. It sets off the discontentment alarm in our heart. Every time we drive past something nicer or every time we see someone who's more, you know, better looking than us or every time we see something that's nicer than what we have, God, our, our alarm goes off and all of a sudden our contentment flies out the window and we're miserable. God, we can't help ourselves sometimes. I mean, I admit it, me. I struggle with this so bad. We need your help, Jesus. And I believe we need to see you more clearly. I, I believe we need to see what we have in you. Because when I remember who you are and what you've done, everything else fades away. What I want to do is I want to take a moment for all of us to, to have that experience. First and foremost, I just, I want you to ask yourself, because I know all of us deal with discontentment. So I'm not even going to ask, do you deal with discontentment? We all do. But I want you to ask yourself for a moment, what am I putting my hope in? It's a little more tricky than you would imagine answering that question. Is it in money? Is it in the zeros of your bank account? 
Depending on what kind of car you drive, you know, or how many bedrooms you have in your house. Do you find your security, security and hope go hand in hand? Do you find your security in those things? We all have different areas where this struggle magnifies itself. And I would encourage you just for a moment to find that area. Is it, is it money or is it something else? Because there's a lot of things that can cause us to be discontent. It's not just money. Take a minute. Identify that, that area in your life where you're most easily drawn towards discontentment. Now, as you have that area identified, I want to encourage you just to ask the Holy Spirit to expose the lie. The lie that it causes us to believe, that if we have more of it, it will help us be a better person or be happier. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we think about this issue, this, this place, maybe it's a lot of places. For a lot of us, there's many areas. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this moment you would, you would expose the lie. That you'd help us see it for what it is. And I want to start the process this morning of trusting, trusting God, of... Of, of knowing that he promises that he will be there when you need him. Do you believe that? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would expose the lies in our heart. Do we believe that we can trust you? Do we believe that you're our source? And then I would just encourage you to start the process, even in this moment, of just beginning to, to really differentiate between the needs and the wants in your life and asking Jesus to give you the strength to begin building a foundation of contentment around your needs. It'll change your life. Holy Spirit, as we do this even now, and I pray that you would help us, prompt us to do it this week. As we walk through our week, help us to pay attention to the kind of language we use, to the, to the kind of things we say, do we need this or do we need that? Is that a want? And help us to understand when we see truthfully what we really need and we see all the other things in our life, I pray that our hearts this week would be overcome with gratitude that our perspective on life will be changed. Yeah, we've hated this car that we have, but then we realize that car is a luxury and all of a sudden we realize, thank you, Jesus, that I have this car. Or whatever area it is in our life, I pray that this week our hearts would come alive and that we would be full to the brim with contentment. Not just because our needs are met, but because we have Jesus. So fill us, Jesus, with you. That is the only way we will experience true contentment is through experiencing the most precious gift, Jesus Christ. Let's all stand together. We're going to worship. And if you need prayer for anything, maybe there's something specific in the message or maybe just something going on in your life, 
We have prayer teams with red lanyards. We encourage you to uh, make your way to one of them. They'd love to pray with you, partner with you in whatever you're going through. Let's, let's spend some time worshiping together and allow Jesus just to fill us with his goodness.